This week, we're going to talk about the, we'll call it the artisan's approach to podcasting. That is figuring out a way you can find your unique voice in the marketplace, build an entertaining and informative show that builds a location independent income for you. This week, we're going to have somebody on the show who's done it and who's in the middle of doing it. So Damien Ruse from semiprocycling.com has been producing his podcast for two years and currently makes a full-time income off of it. And just to give you some context for this interview, I just want to play for you the intro of Damien's show so you can get an idea of the energy and approach he takes. So let's roll that clip. Uh, that'd be pretty boring riding on the road. Hey, podcast listener, you're listening to the Semi Pro Cycling Podcast, the weekly podcast where we discuss all the issues that cyclists talk about. Whether you're out training, commuting, or just riding around, sit down and listen in because we're about to begin. I got something to say, man. Yo, welcome to episode 112 of the Semi Pro Cycling Podcast, where we believe that only a semi pro cyclist rides for love and not money. If you stick around to the end, I'll fill you in on the quote from the top of the show and let you know who would be bored riding on the road. Hey there, semi-pros. My name is Damien Roos. I'm the founder of Semi-Pro Cycling, home of the Semi-Pro Cyclist, and you can find this episode at semiprocycling.com forward slash double. Now, we are starting with a review today. Great podcast, five stars. So when I ran into Damien last week in Bangkok, I was so excited to hear about the progress his business and his clients and his podcasts were making. And my first thought was, I got to share this on the show because I was there at the very beginning. I heard this intro music that you just heard. I mentioned it at some point in the interview. It's just like, I thought to myself, if this guy keeps doing this show, it's going to work because the market's right, the energy's right, and this guy really knows his stuff. So if you're interested in all at podcasting, at blogging, at making a living from your own art. I think this episode's for you. You can leave us your thoughts and questions for Damien at tropicalmba.com slash semi-pro-cycling. Hey, podcast listener. Even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. So let's get started off with just what you're doing currently. So just let the audience know what your show is all about and where you are at in the business. Yeah, definitely the best place to start, I think, is where I see myself. And where I see myself is a coach, a cyclist, and a podcast host. The podcast is my main channel for reaching out to potential clients and also just to add my mark to the cycling world. You've been in the game for two years, so day 666 or thereabouts. Where are you at on a business perspective? I have a coaching house that has a roster of clients that are worldwide. They are at various different levels from national competition down to just wanting to be fitter and a better person. That's my main income at the moment. I charge for monthly services where it's coaching and writing programs for cyclists to get better. So you're saying you're not quite back at your corporate income level, but you're making enough to pay the bills, keep the lights on, and live a decent life. Absolutely. I left the corporate level at around 32, 
So I was quite high when I left. So getting back to that point is going to take a little more time. But the point that I'm at now, it's a very comfortable living in a Southeast Asian country. And I would be quite comfortable stepping back to Australia or another Western country, maybe not certain European countries, but (laughs) anywhere else I would be able to get by. I really love your show. I love the way that you approach it, this craftsman, auteur approach. It's a unique show. And I'm really going to get wonky on that. But I think it'd be cool if we sort of, before we get into the business and the art, to get into the narrative just a little bit and zoom back to the Genesis story. Why did you think it was a possibility for you to become a podcaster? What was going through your head when you were making all of this money? I'm assuming you were location-based. You were in Australia. Can you sort of lay out the brickwork of why you started to think about building an audience business as an option for you? Well, I believe my situation is quite unique in the location-independent kind of circles where I didn't necessarily come to an audience business or a location-independent business looking to find new challenges, get away from my corporate living or whatever. It all just starts with a girl. (laughs) (laughs) And then everything was kind of just snowballing from that point. I was in Australia. She's Thai, so we met. And then she had to go back to Thailand to work. So I followed her along. And then at that point, I was going to take a year off work and figure out what I was going to do and whether I really wanted to stick around a lot longer. That just sent me on this weird track where I was initially searching Bangkok for volunteering and what can I do for a year to fill my time up. And then it led me to Cody McKibben. From there, I was four-hour work week and then just bouncing around from all of that stuff. So then that was entering my head. And then I kind of went through this process of trying all these different things, which I think is super common, all of them falling flat, me ending up back in Australia working for six months, saving and then just saying, all right, this is it. Fuck it. We're going to go for it. I'm going to get married. I'm going to just see where it ends up. And now I have to really start thinking about how I'm going to make money. This is interesting because a lot of people in this situation, you know, they want to be with somebody. Your wife has to move around the world all the time because she's a diplomat. And so you're basically thinking, well, my back's up against the wall. If I want to have this relationship, I have to figure out a way to pull my weight, basically. If I want to have the relationship, I have to figure out how to pull my weight. And if I want to maintain my ambition as a person on earth, <laughs> I don't want to just sit there and just be some sap that just gets schlubbed around from country to country. It's not in my nature to be like that. So I've always had this drive to do something with my life. And this presented an opportunity, but it also presented a lot of challenges to get there. Okay, so let's then talk about niche selection. What are maybe one or two of the ideas that you failed at? And then why did you finally settle on the cycling niche? So the ideas that I failed at, I wouldn't necessarily say I totally failed at them, but I just saw that I wasn't compatible with what was going on in those industries. There was, of course, on-page SEO consulting that I was doing. Outside of that, there was a cleaning rag business that I was partnering with a family member, and that was kind of trouble from the start. But I couldn't see myself going down that road. So then when it came to the point of choosing a new idea that I could follow through with, I wanted to select something that I had some congruency with. I had some confidence to do in the first place. It's heavily built into my personality what I do now. And so in order for me to do it, I have to enjoy the process. I have to enjoy what it is. And cycling is something that I've done forever. I competed when I was younger and then I took it back up after a bit of a break. So it's always been around. And then this was just, for me, it was like a natural progression. So you also are a musician. How much did that play into your decision to start a show? If I've done something before, it proves to myself I can do it. So I follow that confidence trail. And it was something that I could easily do in a technical sense. So there was no problems with that. Plus, 
I was a hip hopper in a former life. So that made it quite easy to get on a microphone and do a bit of a show. Before we jump into the process and everything, when you look at like on-page SEO consulting and partnering with an existing business, those are opportunities that have a lot of clarity. When you decided to start this show, there's not a lot of clarity there. I mean, really, you're just going to put out your first five episodes and it's like you're naked in the wind. What was it that was in your head? Did you look at another podcaster or did you look at other bicycle coaches? Was there something in your head that gave you the confidence or were you just like, you know, F it, I don't have anything better to do? It's interesting you use the word clarity for those other businesses because to me, there was no clarity because it was a whole new world to me. It was a mess. I would look at it and I wouldn't know the next steps. Where everything I feel like I'm doing now is kind of innate and it naturally comes out of me. It's not easy, but it's looking from the inside out rather than the other way around. So it makes the whole process for me a lot simpler because it's just following what I would just be naturally doing anyway. On one of our favorite podcasts, Startup School, Seth Godin advocates that people don't start interview shows, that they start a podcast that presents them as an auteur, somebody who kind of brings a new knowledge base to the world. And one of the reasons I love your show is it's very much like that. It's your unique voice. It's so wrapped up in who you are and what you want to say to your audience. That requires a unique creative process. You can't just jump on Skype and hit call recorder. Can you first describe for people who haven't listened to your show what it sounds like and how it's structured? It's heavily structured and in some ways it sounds like maybe an old school radio show that has segments and bits and pieces but of course I'm the one filling each of the segments. So the structure it follows moves down from just a quite general where it starts with a quote and the reason the quote is kind of in there it's to grab attention, it's to remain relevant, but it's also to show that I know the people that are the players in the game. Generally, you'll get like a news clipping, like someone saying, yeah, I just totally pulled it out in the last 50 meters and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, and there may or may not be really unfair editing to these people that make <laughs> them sound like jackasses. But generally, I love the people that I quote and I fill in a story at the end. So it's a bit of a tease where I, I pull that later on and I actually tell a bit of a story that's relevant and then find the information that's relevant to the listener. Then once I move from there, I just go through the normal intros. I do a review. It's a controversial topic at the moment why people do reviews, but I love trying to give back and people love listening to reviews. I myself get a little chuffed when Dan reads out my review on the Tropical NBA podcast. So I understand that feeling and I've kept it in there. Even though there's a little bit of negativity, it's more overwhelming than not. And you've addressed it by just doing one review each show. Yeah, at the start I was really loose and I did up to four reviews and it was just this like instant love in and any, anybody that just would have started listening to that show would have been horrible. So I, <laughs> I definitely apologize to that for anyone that was listening to that. But now it's quick, it's short. Sometimes the reviews are epic, but I try and read every word. So I really appreciate the reviews. So I don't want to sort of downplay them at all. From there, I move into what I call the performance probe, which started originally as a news section, bringing up news things. But then eventually I realized that there is a lot of really good news out there in the cycling world. So I'm not adding anything to the world. So I'll stick to my strengths, which is performance and adding performance and speed to people on the bike. So I have a section called Performance Probe. Performance Probe has two segments. The first one is a recent study that's 
really relevant to the audience, whether that's mouth rinsing carbohydrates and spitting it out before a ride gives you 10 extra seconds on a time trial or something that's really relevant and people can actually apply. Then the second one is a general piece of performance. So it's very general, whether it's an interview or it's a clip from somewhere or it's a seminar that someone can watch on YouTube. I generally try and break it down. So if they choose to, they don't have to go and watch it. So it's really heavily filtering on the front end. So then you move on to the nuts and bolts section which yes. is like your meat and potatoes. Yes. And, and this is the part that requires the most work. Yes. How do you structure the thinking throughout your main section? Because, again, for the audience, you're not just interviewing some guy that's an expert every week. You're actually getting on your soapbox and explaining a performance technique for 10 minutes. Uh, how do you structure that? So I have to front end load all the information. So I will choose a topic and I'm pretty keyed in it to this point as to what is really successful as a performance standpoint, successful as a people attached to it quite well and they get something from it. So I choose topics based on my past experience. And then once I have that topic, I front load myself with as much information as possible. I think that has a couple of effects on me that it's all in my short-term memory so that when I go to record, I have all these little bits floating around. So I just immerse myself for hours. So you've got all this information, say, about power pedals in your head. When you flip on the mic, how do you know which sentence to start with? How do you know, do you write the whole thing out? I mean, for me, I do five bullet points. How do you structure yourself so you just don't get lost in the weeds? I heavily structure it. I've listened to your idea about the golf swing, that if you try and take one small part and think about that one small part, all the rest is going to go to shit. (laughs) But for some reason, I feel like I have to structure it because I like the confidence that it gives me that I can walk into my recording booth or wherever I'm recording and I know it's all there and all I'm concentrating on is the delivery and connecting with the audience and being emotional, trying to draw whatever is out of that. Where if you talk to me in person, you'll realize that I'm actually a little slow and it takes a bit of time for me to compute things. So I don't want that lagging. I don't want that, okay, there's this idea and it's this. I want it to be locked down in my head, then I want to write it down, and then I want to just repeat that and try and make that the best possible performance I can do. So you said in terms of your productivity schedule, Wednesday is your podcast day. So you're building this amazing, wonderful asset. How many episodes do you have now? 113. So this is the asset that your business rests on. Every Wednesday is a day that you focus on that asset. So walk me through a typical Wednesday. Wednesday, I have decided is the day that if all else fails, if I'm sick, if I'm hungover, if I lose internet at my house and I have to go somewhere, it's going to get published no matter what. I have a big buffer because I have about 20 hours going late into the night. I get up in the morning, whatever time that is, 9 or 10 in the morning, and from that moment, my brain is fixed on podcasts. So if I'm not feeling inspirational, which sometimes happens in the morning, I'll go through the small parts that can be filled quite easily. Right. Find a quote. Yeah, the housekeeping. Yeah, the quote, edit the quote, do this, set up the new editing sheet in Adobe Audition, which is what I use. So use the template that I've got and get that all into place. Eventually, it's kind of like, I don't know, when you're at university writing an essay, eventually you have to sit down and do the thing. You can't just format for four hours. (laughs) So eventually I do come up with a topic or one has been bubbling away or maybe, and if I do interviews, maybe I'll do it on another day and then I'll be able to use that material and I'm crafting that into a storyline. Yeah, once I have the topic itself, that's when I just start heavily researching the topic. That's when I'm front-loading it. That's when I'm finding out all the information that's out there so that I can quickly grab pieces of it and then start to storyboard that. 
And so to talk about then a minimum viable podcast, what would be the shortest nuts and bolts section that you would let yourself get away with in terms of getting a show live? I actually don't think about nuts and bolts on its own. Okay. The shortest show that I would ever do would have been 20 minutes, and that would have been in the first 50 episodes. Now I've got a bit of room in the format where I can kind of tweak it. So if the nuts and bolts is starting to lack or it's not going to be as long as I thought it was, then I can stretch out the performance probe element of it. That may sound like cheating, but it definitely, it's still high quality content the whole time through. It's all dense just because it falls a little short doesn't mean that the quality is down. Yeah, so let's talk about some of the things that when you got started two years ago that maybe you didn't realize that maybe you could send a warning signal out to some of our listeners that are looking to get into producing their own art and building a business around it. Now, the first thing that you mentioned was you didn't realize how much of a skill set podcasting was. Can you describe what you mean by that? I think a lot of people go into podcasting. Well, I know I definitely went into podcasting just thinking about the audio element not thinking about the positioning of it or it as a separate art form that you can develop yourself into. So you can get lost in all of the technical details but lose the message. I think it's made me a better writer overall, but also seeing things in a different way. So not just communicating something, but taking something, putting it together with other things and making something brand new. One of the things that's very interesting about your space is that how credentialized people are. And and this is something people are very concerned about. You know, recently I suggested that people start an accounting blog. And I got an email from some guy that works at like Ernst & Young or something telling me I was a jackass. And you're in a space where everybody has a PhD or they maybe have a title that they won some big championship or something. And you're a coach who doesn't have a lot of those credentials. Can you talk about positioning yourself as an authority in a space where you don't have medals so much as other people or degrees? Yeah, there's definitely a lot of people that are in this space, ex-cyclists, Olympians on one side, and then you have yeah PhDs, physiologists, theoretical people on the other side. It presents some challenge to me because maybe my depth doesn't run into those areas, but if I position myself in an area that I'm strong in, which is working a job and racing and riding and getting results, then how can an Olympian coach make claim to that? For me, I was thinking, well, where are my strong points? What have I done? And what do I know that I can double down on? All the other stuff is more about being open to new ideas and things. So that's the other side of it. I see technology as an opportunity where a lot of these other coaches and things are so locked down in their ways that people are afraid of this. To look at that from above, then I'm agile, I'm willing to move around and try different things. People are attracted to that and that's kind of the one strength. So that's the thing. If you had a strength that you know you can double down on, you're confident in that strength, then you just position yourself in that little corner and no one can touch you. People will be attracted to your personality. They'll be attracted to the message. And all it is is just having the confidence to stand there and say, this is it. And if it doesn't work, then try something else. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So, I mean, one of the things that when we were talking earlier is I I think maybe you might be a better person to give advice about podcasting than me because you're sort of closer to the bone in terms of like what it means to start an audience-based business because you're right there with your audience now at the beginning stages. So... Let's talk about some of the things you might advise to yourself two years ago when you were just getting started and how you might approach things a little bit differently. One of the things you mentioned that you have a point of view about people might want to think a little bit harder about whether they should start a podcast in the first place. Because, of course, I'm like everybody should start a podcast. Why do you think people should consider it more? Because it's hard work if you want to do it right. I see content as having to get better and better and better. If you don't have the experience, then the learning curve is crazy. 
and outsourcing is not at the level yet where they can produce a high quality content show. The bits that I would have to put together if I outsourced my show, which I don't, it's going to take me a long time to figure that out. Definitely understand that it is a long game. And it's not just a long game as far as the audience is concerned and everything else that's following and what you're trying to do with it. Getting deep into the podcasting itself, you really have to start thinking critically about your communication skills, about how you structure information, how you put different things that don't even work together You put them together to try and get something new because this is what the world is asking for. And this is really the benefit of being able to have your own show, I think. So be prepared for a journey to work hard and be prepared for a lot of work. You managed to make a living in a business around a podcast. It's not about podcasting, about podcasting, about podcasting. Do you have an ax to grind with gurus in the space? Are there things that you see? There is this interesting mix between the practitioners and the preachers. The preachers tend to get so much benefit from preaching that they end up preaching for years and years and years, and they end up regurgitating the things, and they might not even be practicing those things anymore. Do you have any access to grind? Are there things that you wish people knew about that might not be properly represented? When I think about the podcasting for podcasting world, I just haven't fallen into that trap. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so busy doing my own thing that I actually don't think they add value to what I'm doing. I think I'm that further along that it's not actually contributing to where I am because my position is very different to someone that wants to start up or just where the whole trend is at the moment for podcasting. It's so easy to get caught up in the world of what someone said on a blog or on a tweet and they're not even the audience that's going to put you into business. Like your audience is on the street going to work, driving to their job, and like it's your role to go out there and shake their hand or get them on a mastermind call or to get their your podcast somehow into their earbuds. And yeah, like listening to the next greatest tip isn't necessarily the way that that gets done. Yeah, I definitely think for all of that stuff, I'm kind of, I'm still open to it, but a lot of it I'm just beyond. So I just, I've switched it off. So let's talk about that then. Let's talk about how you went from creating a great show. It's a legitimately great show. I think we knew that at the beginning, like the people that were listening to it in the early days were like, I remember listening to your show. And this is worth saying on the record that I listened to it just to get an idea of what you could do with a podcast. You know what I mean? Like you had an innovative approach. I knew that you were a music producer beforehand. And so I was like, well, what's this guy doing? And you were doing some interesting things by like keeping the energy really high. Like you took out a lot of the blank spaces in your show. It was very dynamic. So people might want to listen to your show just for inspiration in terms of like how. Go back to number one. Yeah, (laughs) it sounded great. It really did. It was intense, which is interesting, too, because, you know, you are not a bombastic personality, but your show is really intense. And so I think it's cool, like that dichotomy of really bringing it on the show, but that's not necessarily like you don't have to live your life that way. I think at the beginning, just from a technical point of view or a strategic point of view, you knew that you couldn't really lose if you built trust with an audience of high-end cyclists. You know, you weren't choosing single moms who own a kitten. I mean, we're talking about people who invest thousands of dollars in coaching and bikes and stuff. I mean, there's money there. But let's talk about what were you doing that first year when you're recording this show every week, every Wednesday? What are you doing Monday through Friday? Are you worried about how you're going to make money off of this thing? Are you having a job on the side? And what is your plan? So this is the crazy thing about having a podcast. And for me, looking back over the last two years, I was not just hanging around doing nothing on those other days. But if I look back, the podcast is the only thing that's still there. So it means that two years later, I have something to show for it. For every other day, I was doing something, trying to hustle something. 
So I was putting a couple of small different offers, but they weren't aligned very well with the audience or what the audience wanted. So for an example is that I did a show on sponsorship and how to get a sponsor. And I was putting a service together for finding sponsors, putting a portfolio together for a team or whatever. And then they would go out shopping for sponsors and I'd identify those sponsors. I got one person that came on with that and then they didn't get any sponsors. (laughs) (laughs) How much did you charge for that? That was cheap. I was 125 bucks just for like an A4 sheet, but it was a bit of thought a couple of hours into it. Was that the first 125 bucks that you made with the business? That was the first time that someone paid me for something and it was just like a one-off or whatever. I often think that like with these audience-based businesses, offers are sort of like tuning forks. You kind of go in there and you're just like, is this resonating? And it sounds like for the first year, you didn't really find anything that resonated. Was there a moment that you were like, my audience has to get to a certain level before I even try to test them with things? Were you worried about offer fatigue? Or were you just like, you know, just continuing to try until something hit? There was a moment where I just had to grow some balls and put an offer on that I could stand behind and I could deliver real value. Okay. So you're pussyfooting around with sponsors and all this weird shit. And then you were like, yeah, I'm going to do something real. How did you determine what real means? Well, the big part of it was like, okay, I'm a year deep into this. I have to do something. But then when I finally just sat down and thought, okay, coaching is in between what I believe I'm good at, what people are going to pay for, and it just works in this whole thing. Then I just put together an offer. So the offer itself was to do writing one month training program. It was to make sure that all you had to do was show up and train. There's a lot of writing things down on paper, making sure you get the program off your computer, doing this and that. I was simply emailing every single day what the training you had to do, exactly how you had to do it, and you didn't have to think about anything else. So you were selling basically 30 emails to somebody. Yes. What was your pivot? How is that different than what other people were doing? Other people would just deliver a PDF and say, here you go, talk to me in 30 days. I see. It didn't resonate because I think it's just innate to people that they're going to have all these problems. Highly motivated people don't need so much guidance they're going to be able to figure out how to do it if they really want to do it. Mm -hmm. And I was trying to take them a little further than they needed to go. So then I needed to come back a little bit and concentrate on other things that would add value to them. What's an example of something that did resonate? So things that do resonate are like actually using the technology as deep as it can go. So really trying to get their data and analyze their data heavily so we can pull out information that they would just miss if they were just skimming it or looking at themselves without knowing the trends. Or So you're getting their information because they're reporting it to you. Yeah, so it's the whole process is on online. That's what makes it a really good business for me to move around. But it also means that I can actively add value to these people by sitting down with their data and analyzing it and and taking out bits and pieces and then adjusting their training based on that information. So you might take a look at some guy's hill climb times and say, I've noticed a trend here that they're not improving. You need to focus on this. Yeah, and it gets even granular than that. You test at the start. You test over different time periods. You see what they're strong and what they're weak at. You make a decision whether... You want to double down on their strengths because it works for their type of event. I see. And then that's measured in power. Then you're just trying to increase that power every month. So you're 12 months in. You put out your first offer. You said it was $250 a month. What was the result that you achieved? So I wanted four people and I got four people. So I capped it at four because I really was green on the processes behind all of it. So you wanted something you could manage. It's also a great sales tactic, though. It is a great sales tactic, but it was genuine and It's genuine based off not being confident that I could supply the value. I actually lined up my ex-coach to be my mentor through this process. Right. In the first week, her internet failed, so I was on my own. So 
Well, I have some insight on this because I've launched so many different products now. I always think it's important to be genuine, but if you can find a genuine cap to your product, it can be difficult because you want to maximize your profitability on a certain product, but it really does change the sales process dramatically. That's one of the things I've learned from dropping offers. So you said you had four people sign up and two of them stayed for almost a year. Yep. It's a pretty incredible result. So you had an average of $600 a month income coming in after one year of work. I'm sure a lot of people might look at that $600 and think that that's not much to write home about after a year of work. But from my perspective, that seems like a really sweet $600 because it's coming from an asset that you've generated from scratch. I saw it as a win because it was coming from nothing, absolutely nothing, and proving my value in somebody's ears only. No face-to-face time, no real background of in the last couple of years building up to that, it was really demonstrating my ability and my potential to help these people. So you got the ball rolling, you have 600 average coming in a month. How have you scaled that coaching process into something that can make you a living over the last year? So Damian Thompson, he says like your first year is learning your skill set. Your second year is learning how to sell your skill set. And then your third year is scaling. So you're already getting into the scaling part. How did you scale it up? The process of selling for me comes back to confidence and believing in my product and my ability to kind of get people to where they want to be. So in order to sell, the biggest driver is pure results. Once people have results, which can take a long time, cycling is a really slow sport and it can take time for people to develop and get to a certain point. What I'm seeing now is these pockets of referrals from the athletes that I have helped out throughout the year. So after that first four, I closed down the offer and I opened it back up and then it started trickling in a few people here and there. Now, in the last month, those athletes, because we're in a change of season, have now referred to other people. And effectively, my coaching has doubled in the last four to six weeks. So now it's seeing that compounding effect of getting that flywheel or whatever other term you want to use going and everything's now starting to sort of move on its own right now these pockets everywhere if you in europe and america and australia they're now sort of autonomous doing their own thing in terms of pricing have you changed it i have increased my lowest tier Okay. But I also added a little bit of analysis to that as well. So I added a little bit of time and I increased the price itself. And what challenges are you facing with the business now, like going forward? I mean, you're at that classic point where you've built yourself a nice job, yep. basically. Yep. Do you have your eyes on enterprise, on a, a scaled up business? Or what does that look like to you? And what are the challenges you're facing over the next 12 months as you see it? Yeah, like you said, these are the classic challenges of coaching in particular, where how do I add value to more people, but still maintain the connection and control that makes it unique and what actually people get attracted to in the first place, especially coming from a personality driven podcast. Right. Because I'm sure that's the reason that they want coaching for me is because of being able to listen to me and understand my ideas and how I process things. For me, the challenge is How do I not just go down that route of providing just really crappy service and just programs that are pre-written that may not actually be there? So for me, the answer is actually partly software Mm -hmm. and partly figuring out something from scratch, brand new. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I had this quote on here that said, I spent the first year thinking something was magically going to happen to me. (laughs) Yeah, it hasn't gone away. One of the reasons I like your story is we're catching it as it's evolving. And it's a really cool model for me. I love the craftsman model of business. I love the fact that you're building a really valuable asset that you own. Undoubtedly, there's going to be people that listen to this and they want to do something similar. And they're like, F it. You know, I'm ready to go for the 
three or five year plan because I don't want to be a deal maker. I don't want to be this hustling, swashbuckling entrepreneur type. I want to be a craftsman. Mm -hmm. Can you leave them with something? What would be some tactical next steps? What are some let's get started tomorrows that you might suggest to people who are inspired by the story of semi-pro cycling? I would actually try and immerse myself in as much information about the topic that you want to do as possible. Because the starting point is figuring out where the gaps are. And the only way to do that is to really, really understand the marketplace and where you're going to go. But on the same side of that is understanding the audience and who you're going to sell to. If you want a slow road and it's going to take time to build up to get to these people, you just have to understand that it's going to take time. Like it's going to take a lot of time and you're not going to know what to do every step of the way. I still don't know what I'm going to do tomorrow, (laughs) but I'm trying new things all the time and being happy with that journey I think is the biggest mindset shift that's happened to me as well as understanding that there are small little parts of this process that you can craft and own and start to become really confident on and build up and up and up. It's interesting because you know everybody tries to draw conclusions about these things if you build it they will come some people will say that and then other people will say no way you gotta sell and it's never gonna be true. I always land on the side of the craftsman. I remember listening to episode number one of your show thinking If this guy sticks with this, for sure, right? Because you had the right audience focus. You had a great show. I definitely wouldn't feel the pressure to start a podcast. Yes, you may listen to a story about someone that's doing well with a podcast, but it may not mean that it's the best thing for you. We'll leave it on that (laughs) ominous note. Hey, I love it. You know, you're two years into this and two years is a long period of someone's life. You're just getting to the point now where this could be like a bigger asset for you in terms of like retirement and all those things that people really think about when they think about career. So it is a big deal. I think that's what I'm hearing from you. It is no small deal to decide to dedicate a day out of every week and much more in terms of your energy to building something like this. Yeah, and it's heavy. It's a heavy time investment. Emotionally, it's a heavy investment. I don't go into it lightly every single time. Funny enough, because your show is the exact opposite tone, by the way. It's like, (laughs) 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 Thanks for bringing the ominous tone to the Tropical MBA audience. I'm sure that they will appreciate your time. No problem. Thanks for having me. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.